This is the Business of Betting podcast, and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 50, and we have Rob Pizzola joining the show. Rob has a background in computer science and statistics. He's a professional better living in North America and focuses on hockey and baseball. Rob shares his approach to betting, statistics, money management, and also why you should bet numbers and not teams. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Rob Pozzola. Today, I'm joined by Rob Pozzola. Rob, thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for having me. So, Rob, why don't you take us through your background and how you got involved and, and started in sports betting? I mean, it's not the prettiest story ever. I mean, I started sports betting when I was in high school, mainly because everyone else in high school was betting. And at that point, I had quite a bit of an ego on me, and I watched a ton of sports, so I figured that it would be pretty easy to translate watching sports into successfully betting on sports. Uh, but unfortunately, it wasn't that easy. And what happened was throughout high school and even early university, I lost a lot of money betting on sports uh, to the point where you eventually have to reflect and say, why am I doing this? Or is there some other process that I can go about that is going to help me actually win at sports betting in the long term? Now, Luckily, at that point, I was studying uh, statistics and computer science in university. So just being a stats guy, I said, maybe I can apply some statistical principles to sports rather than using the eye test uh, in order to bet on games. And I started to do that. So I started to model sports. Uh, Nothing crazy at first, but looking at certain things that would be profitable over time, I started getting into some trends and systems, which I obviously don't use now anymore, realizing that they're not predictive. But over time, I, I got connected with some other people on Twitter, just other good resources, and we sort of formed a focus group of, uh, of guys that wanted to be betting on sports. And from there, it eventually turned into more than a hobby for me. I you know, quit my job to pursue it full time, and uh, things have been going really well since. So, I mean, it started really well, really poorly to start, and then I um, sort of had to take some reflection on that, go about it with a different process, and, and that's sort of how I got into it. Who were you learning from initially? Was there a whole suite of handicappers online or in newspapers or people talking about betting that you could learn from? Or were you just looking at games, watching games, thinking that, you know, Michael Jordan's a really good player, the Bulls are going to win, regardless if they're six-point favorites or 12-point favorites. It was Jordan's the team, you know, that's the the bet I'm going to take. Yeah, well, that was certainly part of it. I watch a ton of sports, and uh, I'm not limited to anything. If it's sports, I'll watch it, and I love it. So was part of it was just me watching it, being perceptive of what I was seeing. But obviously you fall into traps when you're only watching single games. You, fall, you have recency bias, and you, there's just a lot of things that don't go well for you. I mean, online at that time, I also fell into the trap of 
checking out free picks websites, um, you know, touts and handicappers that were posting online, which over time I've learned that the vast majority of these people are not profitable and they're only really touting in order to make a living because they can't make a living betting their actual picks. But I started to bet those picks as well, thinking that these people have good information and they're sharing it. So, I mean, I did all the things that you could possibly do wrong as a youngster when I was betting on sports. And then over time, you learn lessons from that. And, you know, you don't want to make the same mistake twice. You know, it's one thing to make the same mistake twice. I should say it's another thing to make it all of your life. And you don't want to get into that habit of continuously making the same mistakes. So uh, from there, I just basically started doing my own thing. I was reading some research papers online, uh, stuff that was done by other students in university or, or university professors in regards to sports betting. But I tried to really distance myself from trends websites or websites that were posting information for free, which I just felt that over time really wasn't valuable information and was steering me in the wrong direction. Tell me how critical statistical models are for you and how they assist your sports betting. They are everything for me right now. I mean, I do, I do not bet with the eye test anymore or bet based on my feelings on a certain game. To me, at the end of the day, what I try to do is I try to make a probability of an outcome on every single game, and I compare that to the sportsbook's probability, and I bet where I feel that I have an edge. And over time, I've been doing this now for several years, so I, I've refined my models and they've gotten better over time to the point where I feel confident in everything that I do bet actually has an edge. But it is everything for me now. I, I personally, I mean, there are many ways that people can bet on sports. And I don't want to say that someone, you know, who is just blindly betting on games or handicapping the games themselves can't win at sports because they can certainly win. But for me, this is the, the course that I've chosen to take that I feel is most repeatable over time. And it's just something that I'm passionate about as well. So in terms of statistical modeling, it's everything I do. I really try not to get to let the human element to get in the way anymore. So tell me about when you're refining your models. What form does that take? Are you changing the individual variables that will that will make up the the model, or are you, you know, spending time going back and seeing what's been profitable in the past and and updating that constantly? Yeah, it's more to do with the variables because every year or every few years we start to get more and more data available to us and different types of data to work with, and some are more predictive than others and. You know, I, I remember when I first started modeling baseball, I was using on-base percentage for uh, hitters, which was at that time considered to be what we would use for hitters. I mean, now looking at it, you know, maybe seven or eight years later, I would laugh that I ever even bet using on-base percentage, but that was the metric that was widely available and was the most predictive uh, going forward for, for hitters. I mean, things change every year. More data becomes available. I mean, we now have stat cast data in baseball where we can see – the exit velocity of uh, every ball off a player's bat, the launch angle, and we can use stuff like that to predict if somebody's getting unlucky or if they've been lucky going forward. So it's more about looking at the data, new data that's becoming available, determining whether it's predictive or not, and if it's something that I can use in my model, whether I can add it in or replace something else completely. And I do that for all sports. At the end of the day, as a sports better, you have to try to stay ahead of the market people are going to adapt. If you, if you are profitable in a sport for a couple of years, that doesn't mean you can just continue to use that for the rest of your life and be profitable because what happens is everyone else catches up and it becomes the norm. I mean, if I could, if I could think of a comparison, but you look at the Ken Palm, Pomeroy ratings for college basketball, I mean, as soon as those became, were put out on the market and released publicly, everybody started to use them. And once everybody starts to use them, you, you lose your edge. So, 
you know, you're betting against the bookmaker, but you're also betting against other bettors. You're trying to beat them to a certain number. There's a lot of things that go into it. So for me, it's just a looking at looking at new data. How can this apply? Uh, can I use it? I mean, at the end of the day, I'm just not using new data that becomes available. I have to de- de- determine whether it's actually useful or not. So those are the things I look at, but I'm constantly adapting. The off-season for every sport every year, I take a look at how my model fared, where I can possibly improve it, and just look at the new data that's become available publicly. So take us through what process takes place to vet a certain variable to see if it is predictive. You talked about before on base percentage, you know, if people in NFL are only using yards per play differential, they're not going to beat the market. Tell us how you go through a progression to identify new data and statistics and see if they can be predictive and then add them into your model. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of ways that you can do them. I have a pretty good backtesting structure, uh, infrastructure in place right now for me. And when I say backtesting, it means that any change that I make to a model and that I implement, I can easily simulate past seasons to determine whether that's had a positive or negative effect, not only on profit, but whether I'm beating the closing line as well and just a number of other variables that I consider to be important. So a lot of times I'll make a subjective call uh, on whether I think it's uh, more predictive or not. I mean, you can run all sorts of correlations as well to different types of metrics to see whether that's going to be predictive or not. And frankly, a lot of uh, research has already been done on these. You'll see a lot of research papers on metrics that come to market in terms of their predictability. And I do read them. And if I, if I feel that it was well-written or that um, it swayed me into believing that something is more predictive than another, then I'll use it going forward. So typically, yes, that's what I'll do. And then I'll implement the changes. I'll backtest the changes to make sure that what I've implemented is is going to be better than what I had in the first place. I mean, at the end of the day, you can just keep implementing stuff over and over, but you're not necessarily making things easier on yourself or actually doing yourself a service um, if it's not improving your model, obviously. How often are you looking at it? Is it just at season's end or is it mid-season? Is it every week you're you're looking at different things? I mean, I try not to switch anything I'm doing mid-season unless things are going very poorly, and I believe that they're going poorly not because... Uh, I've been unlucky, but because I truly don't have an edge. And that hasn't happened in a long time. So what I tend to do during the season is anything that I find interesting, whether it be through Twitter or an article sent to me, any research paper, I'll make a note of it, and then I just review them all at the end of the year. Sometimes I'll read them mid-season as well. But I do not implement changes in the middle of the season. I I spend a lot of time in the off-season making sure everything is ready to go for the start of the upcoming season. And I don't really want to be tweaking just based on you know, a couple weeks of bad results, of poor results. I mean, even going back to baseball last year, the first month and a half of baseball last year, I lost a significant amount of money. I don't feel like uh, I didn't have an edge at that point. I just felt like variance took over and I had some unlucky results. A lot of people, what they would have done at that point after a month and a half of losing is probably just started over or tried to fix things, assuming that they were broken. Uh, I mean, I don't make that assumption. I go into the season... Um, having tested all my things and, and strongly believing that I have an edge over uh, bookmakers and markets. So, uh, I mean, I try not to, to fiddle around in season at all, and I, I leave it to the off season when I have a little bit of downtime. So what about data or statistics or factors that you would say is just noise and irrelevant or just bad media narrative? Obviously, you wouldn't include it in your model. Is there anything you can do with that if you think that other people or the market is taking it into account? I mean, I, 
I just think the markets now are so efficient that there's really very few people that are betting large into large limits that don't know what they're doing. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. There are still people that are wealthy and like to get bets down, and they might put you know 20,000 on a game at Pinnacle and move a number just because that's enough action to move a number. But for the most part, the market is pretty efficient. I don't think that they're accounting for something that I don't that I you know is meaningless, so to speak. I will say, you know, I see it all the time, whether it be Twitter or even just friends talking to me, but people fall in love with trends, and trends are not going to get you anywhere going forward. I mean, trends are a good uh, descriptor of things that have happened in the past, but they're not predictive at all going forward because they're not applied to a number. You know, I'll I'll see people say stuff all the time, like this team is 10-0 in their last 10 games with this pitcher starting on the road. I mean, that's fine, but at the end of the day, if you're going to have to pay, you know, minus 300 on him on the road, you're probably not getting fair value. It's, people are, are just basically looking to bet aside regardless of the number, and that's a real problem, you know, in sports betting. So I would say trends are the one thing that I typically stay away from. You know, systems that date back like 30 and 40 years, those are other things that I see all the time, and I just laugh um, because – it's a completely different landscape in sports than it was 30 and 40 years ago and stuff that used to apply back in the day. I mean, you talk about the zigzag theory for NBA playoffs, stuff like that. It's just irrelevant nowadays. So for me, it's all about data. I'm driven by statistics. And when I say data, I'm talking about being able to actually arrive at a a probability on a game. And I don't think you can do that by using trends or or systems. Do you ever think about going against trends or does that add any value to your if your number is showing value at the line in the NBA playoffs and the zigzag theory is on the other side does that make you more excited about a game or is it just completely irrelevant noise it's, it's noise I, I don't even like I don't even look at it to be honest with you I, I, I can't even remember the last time I saw it I actively seeked out a trend myself it would have been upwards of five years ago I mean it, it's just something that doesn't even dawn on me. At the end of the day, the, you know, my day-to-day process is I run my numbers on games. I compare it to books numbers. I make a bet. Uh, I don't wait on certain bets unless I have strong information telling me that someone is going to bet the other side and I might be able to get a, a better number. But that's extremely, extremely rare. So for me, the rest is just noise. I just do my own thing. I don't worry about anything else. And, and that's, that, it's been pretty profitable for me for a while now. So is there enough publicly available information out there for you to run your model or are you buying certain content? Do you have to sort of create derivative content based off sort of play-by-play data? How do you go about getting those uh, important factors into your model? Yeah, it's a loaded question because it really depends on the sport. So some sports, yes, absolutely, there's enough public information available. I mean, what I personally like to do is if I see something that is good data online um, that's maybe not... Uh, not everyone is aware of yet. I actually like to buy that data myself. I've done that a couple of times just so that I'm the only person that's using it. Um, there, there's just a number. I, I mean, I've created my own, you know, for hockey, for example, I don't publish anything or, or what I do for hockey uh, just because I feel that's my biggest edge in any sport. But I, I have my own statistics that I've created myself um, that I use in my, in my modeling as well. So, I mean, it's really all dependent on the sport, but everything that you mentioned there, it's, it's open and it's, and it's, it's a possibility for me. The Betfair Exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. 
Play the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So how do you deal with short-term variants and potentially unlucky runs? Have you got a process in place to sort of lock down and have confidence in your, I I guess, your system and your day-to-day process and you just have to have confidence? Or is there anything else you can be doing to ensure that you don't drastically change things because it might just be a small sample size? Right. I I mean, I want to say that you, I, I always have confidence, but that's not true. I mean, regardless of whether you believe in what you're doing or not, a long period of uh, losing is going to make you question yourself. And it, it doesn't, I, I've been doing this for many years now. I'm very confident in what I do. But even, that, even so, if I have a losing month in a certain sport, I still ma- it still makes me question what I'm doing. Now, I'm not going to start changing things all of a sudden, but you're going to want to start to look into other factors aside from winning and losing. So I always tell, tell people, I mean, as a sports better, you have a goal of winning money. That's what everybody wants to do. But if you're just only tracking your wins and losses, you're doing yourself a disservice. You also want to track how often you're beating the market. And when I say beating the market, I mean just getting a better number than what the market actually closes at. So lots of times I'll see myself have a losing month and I beat the market on 80% of my bets. I, I know that it's just a period of bad variance. And that's just because I believe in the efficient market hypothesis. I've bet into these markets for years now. And I, I really, really think that the closing number at Pinnacle is the best indicator or the truest indicator of an actual probability on a game, um, 99% of the time. I mean, there's a few exceptions here and there. But, I, you know, I, I track my closing line value. That's something that I look at regularly. And during periods of, of losing, if my closing line value is fine, I just tell myself it is what it is. Um, and I you know, for every bad run I have, there's going to be a, a good run that works in my favor. And I think you have to stay level-headed and just really not overreact to anything. And that's one of the biggest mistakes I see from sports bettors, frankly, is that there's just such an overreaction to um, short-term sample sizes. I mean, not only losing, but winning. I see people who have won 10 bets in a row, and all of a sudden they start upping their units just for no reason other than they think they're on a hot streak, or they think that something that they're doing is making them see the board a little bit more clearly or they have some better edge, but really that's just a fiction of their imagina- figment of their imagination and it's fictional and uh, lots of mistakes are made from there. So, I mean, for me, I try to stay level-headed. I, I, I won't lie. Obviously, periods of losing suck and they, they do make, make you question what you're doing, but um, I try not to let it get to me. So you mentioned you use the, the closing line of Pinnacle to sort of evaluate your... Your betting. What else do you do in terms of looking back at your results and your bets to, in a forward-looking way to utilize that information? Do you see that, oh, maybe, you know, first half bets in NBA throughout the season, you hit 61% or maybe, you know, some over-under bets that you were playing on, you know, certain games were more profitable. Do you go into that detail? I do, but I, okay, I, I don't really bet. Most of the stuff I bet is games. Uh, I don't do a lot of first-half betting. I don't do a lot of props betting. I mean, there's a reason for it, and the reason is just time. I'm, I mean, I've been successful at betting games. It's something that I do. I don't have the time to really dig deep into all different types of betting combinations and so on and so forth. So that's what I do. But in terms of tracking, I do, I do a lot of tracking by team. I mean, this will help you in, in mid-season determine whether you're overvaluing and undervaluing a team. I mean, you should want to track how often you're betting on a team, how often you're betting against a team, uh, how frequently it's happening, whether the market agrees or disagrees with you when you're betting on or against that certain team. 
So sometimes, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to change something because I've bet on a team more than I've bet on other teams, but it'll allow you to at least look into it. Why is this happening? What, what is my model like about this team that is potentially causing me to bet on them so frequently? So those are things that I specifically track on top of it just to make sure that there's not something wrong with obviously the calculations I'm making or just in general, you know, trying to find out what the cause of, of my bets. And aside from that, I don't really do a whole lot of, um, I don't get into much more detail just because I'm not really betting in, into different uh, markets like first half, first quarter, uh, so on and so forth. So take us to a real life example and maybe one from this season from the NHL, the Golden Knights. How do you go from preseason ratings or rankings within your own system, seeing them potentially perform above average or above market expectation seeing that extend, take us through sort of the, the process throughout a season for someone like the Golden Knights and, and how you maybe adjust, maybe don't. Yeah, so um, with, with, the, with hockey, it's, it's quite simple to do because there's a metric in hockey that's called expected goals. Um, it's becoming more and more popular. I started working with expected goals about three years ago. And basically what expected goals does is it takes the play-by-play of a hockey game and determines where the shots are coming on the ice, what type of shots they are, uh, whether it be a wrist shot, slap shot, one-timer, tip-in, all sorts of different options, and determine the, determines what a team would have been expected to score based on all the chances that they got in a game. So you can basically calculate what a team's win probability should have been based on expected goals compared to what their actual win probability was. And Vegas had that insane run to start the season where I had them ranked somewhere around 25th in the league, which is very low, I wasn't frequently betting against them, but I also wasn't capitalizing on that run as much as I should have. But at the end of the day, when you look at that and you look at their expected goals in that period, that was just a period of luck for them um, where they really outperformed. And this happens in hockey. There's a lot of variance in hockey, especially because there are so few scoring opportunities or actual scoring plays and events in hockey compared to other sports. But it was just a period of variance. And then conversely, Vegas went into a little bit of a slump later on in the year. And that was a period of time where they were underperforming uh, against their actual expected goals. So, I mean, it it just, I I like to use expected goals to look into um, whether a team is in a period of of luck or whether that that success that they're having is, you know, will continue or if, if it can possibly be sustained. So with Vegas, I didn't do a whole lot. Again, there's no, there's not a lot of, um, day-to-day manual intervention from me, aside from just looking at things to make sure that they look right. Everything is pretty much automated at this point. Um, I give things a, a second look over before I bet them. But aside from that, I mean, I don't think I over, I don't think I really undervalued Vegas at the beginning of the year for what they were at that point. As the year got on, they continued to play better. And then once you start working with getting a larger data size to work with, you start to to see that they, you know, move up your rankings a little bit, and uh, it was what it was. But at the end of the year, I mean, I look at Vegas games, I, I turned a decent profit on them, but I didn't have a whole lot of bets. So, um, I, you know, I didn't capitalize on that run at the beginning of the year, which was a bit lucky, and I didn't capitalize betting against them um, later on in the year when they, when they went into a bit of a losing streak. But um, that, that was the Vegas example from this season. So help us understand with some of these more advanced statistics now are there more than one way to calculate something like expected goals and i you know is open net 
uh, at the end of a game factored in properly? Do you have your own way of factoring that in? Do you create your own expected goals metric? And I remember reading an article recently about, I think it was Washington, they have a process now where they're trying to have less shots but better shots, and they've calculated uh, through a third party how you have better shots based on angle of shot and all this type of stuff. Tell us how you, especially for these advanced metrics these days, are you calculating them all yourself or are you taking the market number? Uh, I'm calculating expected goals myself, but I will say the expected goals that I calculate will be different from, I mean, there are other publications that do it online. There's one called Money Puck. There's one called Corsica. My numbers are, will be different than theirs on a game-to-game basis, so there is no uh, official proper way of calculating expected goals. Each person is going to do it, have their own method. I will say that they're fairly close by the end of the game. You're not going to see any drastic changes uh, from one site to another or my numbers, but I prefer my own methods, and that's just something that I was always comfortable with. Um, we talked a little bit about data earlier, but I hate being reliant on someone else's data um, because, I mean, that data source can go away and you're sort of stuck. And I don't like doing things that way, and that's sort of why I gravitated to do, doing my own expected goals a couple of years ago. But, I mean, yes, you can account for empty net. You can account for different types of situations. Uh, and what you also have to do is account for the score of the game. I mean, there's, you can just do expected goals, but, I mean, it's a little bit misleading if you're not accounting for the score of a game. So there's something called score-adjusted expected goals. And when I say accounting for the score of a game, if a team is leading by multiple goals, they tend to take their foot off the gas a little bit and start to play a little bit of defense and defend that lead. So they're not going to get as many chances. And you do have to adjust for the, the way a team is playing at certain points of the game as well. So, um, yeah, go, I mean, there's no set-in-stone way to calculate it. Even stuff like scoring chances, at the end of the day, there's no real definition of what constitutes a scoring chance in the NHL. It's up to someone who's watching the game to determine what they feel is a scoring chance, or you can use expected goals, and if it crosses a certain threshold, that could be considered a scoring chance, but there's not really a lot of consistency in these metrics in hockey. It's a little bit different than baseball. Baseball is what it is. A player is batting 300, or they're on base is 300, or their weighted on base average is this, their ERA is this. It's a little bit different for hockey because there's only basic metrics, and then we use those basic metrics and play-by-plays to calculate some more sophisticated metrics in hockey. So let's talk specialization. Are you able to bet on multiple sports, many games, many games per day because you have uh, you know, the computer science and statistical background and process? Or do you still think that specialization is important because ultimately the variables that go into your, your systems need to be spot on, up to date with the market and continually evolving? I believe in specialization. I do believe it's important. So I work with a partner, um, and just to give an example, but during hockey season, I focus on hockey, and he focuses on basketball. Uh, We can both, I mean, if he goes on vacation or I go on vacation, I can jump in and take over his stuff. But I think it's really important to be in tune with the sport, um, to to watch the market every single day, see what is happening in the market. Um, uh, There's just so many advantages to being in tune with one single sport. I mean, it doesn't always work out that way, and sometimes there's an overlap between seasons, so I'll take on a couple sports, as will he, but I am a big believer in specialization. That's not to say that if you're betting every single sport, you can't profit over the long term. I just think that when you're, paying, when you're really paying attention to the details of one specific sport, you gain more insights than if you're spread out, and that's just my personal belief. I know there's people that are the a complete opposite way around, and they would never go for specialization, but 
for me, I'm I'm big into it, and and uh, you know, for me, I only focus on two sports a year, which are hockey and baseball. And the seasons don't really overlap, which is great. And it just really allows me to get into to get in tune with those markets. And I think I'm more successful because of it. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair Exchange is a low-margin, buy-sell, fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter, not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. So take me through your betting approach. Do you take notice of opening lines and, and when they're released, or do you only look at the market at the point when you can actually have a reasonable bet and it might be closer to the to the tip-off or drop of the puck? Take us through, when you're watching markets, how you approach it. Yeah, it's, it's different. Uh, I mean, it, it's all different depending on your outs and where you're actually able to bet. So this year I actually have a few local accounts or off-screen accounts where they do post overnight lines. And this is not something that I had in the past. So for me this year, I am looking at overnight lines. Now in the past, baseball, for example, last year, I would have never looked at baseball lines the day before because what would happen to me is I'd see the line, I'd wake up the next morning, and I'd see how they've already been shifted by a bunch of overnight action. It would just make me upset because I would have gone from maybe you know six or seven edges in baseball if I had at midnight the night before to you know, two or three in the morning, and I, I obviously want more action down whenever I have an edge. So I, I, in the past, I wouldn't have looked at it. Now, because of where I'm actually able to bet and the outs that I have, I am looking at it. But if I were to no longer have overnight baseball outs or places to get uh, action down without moving a, an overnight line, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be looking at overnights anymore. So it's all dependent on basically where I can get my money down, and that determines when I'm actually looking at the, number, the market numbers. So do you try and predict which direction the market's going to go and that will guide when and I guess at what number you're willing to bet? Or do you just, when your edge is there and it reaches a certain percentage you know, above your price and you're happy to bet, then you'll just pull the trigger? Yeah, it's, it's a lot more of the latter. I mean, I don't wait on an edge because I used to and I would get beat to market every once in a while and it's just not a good feeling when you have an edge on a game but you wait a little bit too long trying to get a better number or thinking that you might get a better number and then you don't because somebody bets it and your complete edge is gone. So for me, I tend to bet an edge right away. Um, Unless, like, there's very, very few instances where I'll know that money is coming in on another side of a game. Um, I don't really want to get into the details of how, but it's extremely rare, like I said, and if that's the case, then I'll just wait to make my bet, even if I do feel an edge is there. And the only reason that that happens is that there's one player in the market that is just a, a pure 100% gambler who really doesn't have an edge over games but likes to get a lot of action down. And if I get tipped off as to which sides he likes in a certain night, then uh, if I do like an, o- an opposite side, I'll hold off. But that's the only instance. Aside from that, then I'm just I'm betting as soon as I see a, an edge open up for me. Okay. So how do you allocate your time? Do you... Spend a lot of the time watching the markets, watching the lines change, watching or trying to see where the money's going, or are you focusing on tinkering with your model? Uh, tell us how you sort of allocate your time on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. I mean, a lot of what I do is automated now. So the first thing I'll do in the morning is when I go to my computer, and I'm up early in the morning because obviously Pinnacle is going to raise their limits, usually around 9 Eastern in the morning. So I like to get things you know, together at least an hour before that and know where where we're going to be looking to bet as soon as limits open up. But 
I get to my computer. Everything has run from the night before. I'm just basically looking to make sure that there's nothing that looks egregious to me right away, nothing that stands out uh, as being off, you know, completely off. I do, I do believe in crowdsourcing. This is one thing that I like to look at. I bet my own numbers. I always bet what I do, but I like to, to compare my numbers to a few other sources that I have um, just to make sure that there's not a strong disagreement on a game, or if there is a strong disagreement on the game, it allows me to look into why. Uh, maybe there's an injury that I haven't factored in or that my, one of my injury feeds is not um, updated yet, or maybe I have projected a lineup for a baseball game to be completely different than someone else has projected a lineup. But that, that's my early morning process is just making sure everything passes the sniff test and that there's nothing that stands out to me as wrong. And if there is something that's wrong, I investigate why, or I just avoid that game completely to start with, um, just because of the, the uncertainty surrounding that game or not, not understanding what I could be missing there or what has gone wrong. But that's what I get done early in the morning. So I obviously am comparing to my different sports books and figuring out where the money is going to go in and where that action is going to get down. And then we're waiting until limits come off and starting to bet those numbers. And aside from that, the rest of my day-to-day -day is just keeping in tune with lineups for baseball. So I have alerts set for when team lineups come out. My model will automatically um, run a new baseball lineup if it's different than what I had projected so I can get a new number on a game. I mean, that allows us to get down action that, uh, on maybe an injury or a player that's out of a lineup, uh, post lineup, beat the market to that. So we're very, I'm fairly quick at doing that. And that's mainly it for the day to day. The rest of the night, I mean, at night, I look at the, the entire day and hits and misses. I mean, I make notes of where I was off market, um, which teams I was off market on, which pitchers I was off market on, uh, just to see if there's any if this trend continues over time. I don't want to be, I don't want to spend the entire year betting on the same pitchers and betting against the same pitchers. I mean, that's not really a, the, you're coin flipping at that point. So my, my, that's basically a day-to-day -day with a lot of downtime in between. And in that downtime, I just work on other side projects or, or read or do whatever else I have to do. So which component of the process do you find most difficult? It sounds like the statistics and computer science part is probably more natural or you've had the education behind it. Is there any part of the process that you would like to outsource or you do or you hate doing? Oh, I mean, I, I, at the end of the day, I, I, I mean, I spend an hour a day going over games just to make sure, I mean, things look, look right. Uh, I, I mean, there's just a lot of manual time that I, I, I really feel the need to do personally just to make sure that I'm betting edges that actually exist. Um, although the process is automated, it's sort of like a double check. And I, I wouldn't really give that up, but it is painstaking. I think it has to be done personally. Um, but it's something that, I mean, if there is no way to really automate it. If I could get someone else to do it and I trusted someone else to do it as diligently as I did, then um, that's something that I'd give up. But aside from that, I mean, it's, I've, I do love what I do. It's pretty fascinating stuff. I'm, I'm a huge sports fan. Uh, I'm a huge numbers guy. There's uh, there's not really a whole lot that I would trade. Uh, I mean, it, it's something that I'm just I'm just immersed in on a day to day basis, and and I I do love it. Do you get to sit back and watch and enjoy a, a game, a baseball game, or an NHL game? I will. Yes and no. Um, 
I try to watch games that I don't bet on. Uh, and I try not to follow scores of games that I bet on. And I used to, I'm getting a lot better at this. I mean, it's just added anxiety and stress where you don't really need it. I mean, the final score is going to be the final score, regardless of whether you watch the game, regardless of whether you check updates after every inning. And especially in baseball, I mean, if you're checking scores in baseball, it will take years off of your life because you're going to see a team almost every night that had a 90% win expectancy at some point in the game blow a game. Um, that's just the way baseball is, and it happens so frequently that, you know, if you are following that stuff, then it, you're just going to – it's not going to be good for your long-term health. So I am still a huge sports fan. I love watching sports. I tend to gravitate to watching games that I don't bet on or just watching my favorite teams. Uh, I'm a, I live in Toronto. I'm a huge Toronto sports fan. Um, I'm, I'm more than comfortable betting against Toronto teams if I feel there's an edge there or betting on them if there's an edge as well. Um, but I, I enjoy a lot of Toronto sports and then other bigger games that I'm, um, I do not have uh, any action on. So what about in-play or live betting? Have you started to look at that? Do you already do some of that? Given you do a lot of automation and simulations through your models, you can probably do it much faster than anyone else or you're playing in a market against those purely to using gut feeling or the eye test. Have you thought about going into that area? I have, and that's probably the next step. But right now it's still, I mean, you still have very limited uh, time to get down on a live bet. There's, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure it will be worth the time investment for me. I mean, limits are usually pretty small on live bets. You're not, they're not taking the same amount of, of, of wager or same uh, wager size that they would in pregame bets or anything uh, along those lines. So you have to account for that. Now, the lines are probably softer. Uh, but there is more big on them as well, and that has to be accounted for. So, I mean, it's something that I'm going to explore. Uh, I, every once in a while, I do, I do live bet myself, but it's more for casual or recreational purposes. Um, again, maybe if I'm watching a game, and I, it, it's really not something. I don't even track how I'm doing on live bets because the bets are so minuscule that it's, it doesn't matter. It's just a little bit of um, trying to give me a little bit more entertainment value on a game every now and then. But in terms of actually doing it to make a serious profit, I'd like to. Um, I'm not sure it's worth the investment. It's something I'll explore, but it's not something I've delved into that much yet. Fair enough, fair enough. So let's talk about money management for a little bit. Are you using Kelly Criterion? I do, yes. I've, uh, I, ever since I started statistically modding, I've been using Kelly for my, for my staking. And is it just straight Kelly or using quarter, half Kelly? Are you able to share some of that? Yeah, so it, it depends on the sport um, because I do believe my edge is bigger than some sports than other. Um, I, would never, I would never go as high as half Kelly. I mean, I use quarter Kelly for the sports that I'm, I'm best at, and I use one-fifth Kelly for the rest of the sports. Um, so those are the two I really use. And, I mean, it's... Some people will go higher than one quarter. I mean, I'm more of a risk-averse type of guy, so that's just what I'm more comfortable with. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, that's, that's been what I've been using for years now. And do you have individual bankrolls, one for baseball and one for NHL, for example, or are you tying it all in together? I have individual bankrolls. So I, I know some people that will do the opposite, and they have one big bankroll, and they just do all their staking off that once they won big bankroll. For me, it's... Uh, individual bankrolls for the sports so um yeah that's uh, I, I mean i'm i 
there's no particular reason that I've actually chose to go that route other than when I first started, I just did that. And uh, over time, I've just never felt the need to change it. So I go into each year with a bankroll for a sport. Um, and I, I, I use my Kelly based off of that specific bankroll. And what about recalculating? Do you do it at season's end every time? Or what if you have a fantastic run for half a season? Will you adjust your unit sizes or vice versa? If it's not going so well, you'll adjust? I won't adjust the unit sizes. And the reason why is because it's actually really hard for me to get more money down than I'm actually getting down right now, um, to be completely honest with you, especially a, small, a sport like hockey. I mean, hockey is where my biggest edge is, but compared to the other markets like football and basketball and baseball, I mean, we can only get down really, you know, less than half of what we can get on other sports. So I'm already betting to the to really the max there in um, in hockey, and there's just no other opportunity for me to increase that bankroll. So I just take profits at the end of the year for that sport. I mean, other sports, um, particularly baseball, yes, if we have opportunity to bet more in the following year, we'll increase the bankroll and. Uh, and recalculate at season's end. But aside from that, I mean, it, it stays pretty consistent from year to year. Many people will talk about the perils of overbetting and the best way to lose all your money is, is overbetting based on your bank or chasing losses and things like that. I'm curious if you ever deviate from your, your formula, and you mentioned Kelly before, is there ever a situation where you'll bet more or less for, for any reason uh, and will deviate from Kelly? I don't. Um, I don't, but I will say that there are situations where I will avoid a game complete. I won't bet it, even if I do have an edge. So it's a little bit different. Uh, I mean, once I, I determine I have an edge and I want to bet that game, I'm going to bet it using Kelly. But I'll give you an example. Um, I don't. I, I could have been yesterday or two days ago. I, I'm completely lost at the games. But this week, at some point. Um, the San Antonio Spurs holds, hosted the Golden State Warriors, Game 3 of the NBA playoffs. I did like the Spurs quite a bit at the number, but the head coach of the Spurs, his wife passed away tragically this week as well, and he wasn't going to be coaching that game. That's not something I personally know uh, how to model or what kind of impact it's going to have on the team or on the game. So there's basically some games with outside scenarios where I just don't know how to account for it, um, so I just... I'm going to avoid it. Uh, I don't know if my edge was true on that game or not um, due to the outside circumstances surrounding that game as well. So that, that's the only time I sort of stray away from um, betting my edges. If, if there's something that I feel strongly that could affect the outcome of the game, that I just I would be guessing at how to account for that. So, uh, but once I do determine I'm betting a game, I, I, do, I do use Kelly. Yeah, that's interesting. I heard both strands. One, it'll galvanize the team and they'll come together and play harder for some reason. Or that'll just completely, you know, cause them to be off their game and then they'll lose by twice as much as normal. So it's an interesting... That situational aspect is very hard to quantify. And I, I, lo I love that you brought that up because the, the, the narratives in sports are so strong. And I, you know, for, for every narrative that, you know, someone talks about, I could really think of the counterpoint... I mean, here's one thing that I studied was when I was younger was revenge games in sports. Um, I haven't done any work on it in over five years now. But to me, when I was looking into it, I found that the revenge game, uh, it doesn't exist, really. Um, there, there's, no, there's no data supporting the fact that when a team loses to an, uh, another team, that they 
put put forth a better effort in the next game. So, you know, every time I hear people talk about revenge games, I always bring up the counterpoint, well, why do you think that a team that lost to a team previously has a better chance to beat them this time out instead of losing again? I mean, one team has already showed or displayed dominance over another team. Why why would we, what's, what's the psychology around that team, you know, not being able to perform at that level next game? And it's just, that's one thing, I mean, narratives in sports, they really drive me insane. It's why I used to work in sports media, and it's why I don't even listen to sports media anymore, because you can really spin things however you want to spin them. And people say a lot of things that they actually, there's just no statistical data to support them, but they've been said for so many years that people just believe them to be true, and they're not. Um, so, I mean, that, that kind of stuff drives me crazy, and it, it, I, just, I just laugh every time I hear people using narratives like that to drive their bets. Yeah, it's very common in the, uh, the sports betting world. I live in the U.S. now, born in Australia, but, you know, that situational analysis and some of the, the rationale and reasoning is, at best, lazy, and at worst, some other adjective. But, you know, Amos Tversky and a few others will be turning in their grave and probably laughing if they saw some of the, the reasoning behind those. But anyway, some general questions for you, Rob, before I let you go. Are there any things that you do or you see others doing to enhance their sports betting outside of, of just doing uh, sort of sports betting-related research? And, and many people will play poker or spend some time, you know, playing backgammon, chess, some of that type of thing. I mean, I think... I don't know if it's necessarily going to help you. I, I'm someone that loves to play poker. I love to play, honestly, like stra- anything to do with strategy, um, any card games to do with strategy, even board games that have to do with strategy. That's just who I am by nature. I think it kind of helps me, um, but I, I can't, I mean, I can't confirm it. So I, I would say that if you're gravitated towards um, statistics and probabilities and, and trying to find strategy, winning strategies, I mean, Doing stuff like that will probably help you a little bit. It'll help you think in a different manner than the way you're you know, an average thinker. But I'm not sure you're going to gain a huge edge on sports betting because you start to play chess all of a sudden. Uh, I mean, it's just a different way of thinking for sure, and, and, and it forces your, your brain to think in a different capacity, which is healthy. But I, there's nothing that I can really pinpoint that I think is uh, outside of sports uh, activity that would help one gain an edge in betting on sports what about worthwhile betting content do you find any out there that you can read listen to or watch that is useful that might make you stop and think about what you're doing or do you prefer other fields to uh to get your fix i i I like twitter um but i mean you have to cut out a lot of the fluff i I think twitter is i mean twitter has helped me immensely in my life i've made so many of the connections that i've made simply because I used to post my probabilities uh, on sports to Twitter and people started to take notice and that's sort of a, kind of how I got into betting on sports for a living um, was that just other people realized that I was good at what I was doing through social media and I made connections through that way. I still think there's a lot of valuable information on Twitter if you follow the right people. Uh, I mean, you, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there I mean, the big brands like Covers and Sports Insights and whatever, where you're not really going to gain any information. It's very trend-based, um, like reverse line movement type of stuff, which, I mean, I laugh every time I see uh, people betting into a number after it's already moved. 
just because some sharp person has already bet on the game at a number that they saw they felt there was value in. Um, so, I mean, you, you really have to avoid a lot of the fluff that you see. But if you use Twitter properly, um, I mean, you, you, there, there, it's a great asset in, in, a, you know, in sports betting. And there's a lot of great information that you can find on there. Do you have any tips for the recreational better who might have, you know, five minutes time before a game and want to place a bet on an NHL game, for example, that they can do one or two things relatively quickly and they may not hit 57%, but they might go from 49% to 51 or 51.5%. I would say, I would always tell someone if they're betting five minutes before a game, then does not bet at all. That's one thing that I would typically say because usually by then, the lines have been bet into shape at that point, and there's very few edges to be had at that time. So, I mean, the timeliness of making your bet is important. Um, I do see people who are betting last minute, and I just think that at that point you're flipping coins. For me, the one thing that I, would, I always stress, and I, you know, it's not easy for people to, to think in this manner, but I heard it somewhere. I actually don't even know where I heard it, but it stuck with me for a long time. And I tell people to bet numbers, not teams. Uh, and what I mean by that is exactly what it sounds like. I think a lot of people just fall in love with a certain team or they'll watch a game and they'll be like, I can't wait to bet against this team next time they play, irrespective of the number on the actual game. I mean, basically what you've done now is you are gonna, you've decided, you've made a decision for yourself that you're going to bet that team regardless of what the number is at that game, and that's disadvantageous to you. So what I always tell people to do, and I think it's a really good exercise for people who want to get into the habit of being a profitable sports better, is I tell them to try to make their own lines on every single game before they look at a sports book's lines. I think it's a really good exercise. It helped me when I was first really starting to take sports betting seriously. But make your own lines and then compare them to the books and then tr do some tracking. How often are you beating the lines? Are lines moving in your favor? I mean, this tells you if you're, if you're, if you're on the right track or whether if you have to go back to the drawing board. But uh, I, I, I see people way too often just you know, they're team-based bettors. It doesn't matter to them what a number is on the game. They're going to bet a team regardless, and that's just a losing strategy over the long term. So that would be my advice. Bet numbers, not teams. Great advice. Rob, I really appreciate your time. Before I let you go, uh, what's your Twitter account for those who are interested? And I can tell them if they're interested in, especially U.S. sports, to uh, watch some of your videos and follow you on Twitter. So do you mind giving uh, give the listeners your Twitter handle? Yeah, it's just my name, at Rob Pizzola, R-O-B-P-I-Z-Z-O-L-A for the American listeners, Z-Z for the Canadian listeners. But, I mean, I don't post picks for people. I, I just, I, it's not what I do. I'm all about strategy. I'm, I'm, I'll, if you have questions on uh, certain things that are going to help you make you more profitable, I'm more than happy to answer them. I do Periscope videos once every couple weeks surround, surrounding sports betting strategy. So I'm not an account that's going to give you picks. That's not what I do, but I can lead you in the right direction to make you a more profitable sports better. And I mean, it's just so much more rewarding as a sports better when you're doing things yourself and finding success rather than just tailing picks from some random people that you've never met before or anything along those lines. So, uh, yes, follow me on Twitter. I mean, my, even don't follow me. My, my DMs are open on Twitter. Anyone can send me questions whenever they want to. Some people are embarrassed to post questions publicly. That's fine. Send me a DM, and I'm more than happy to get back to you if I have an answer. Best of luck with the uh, the NHL playoffs and the rest of baseball season, my friend. 
All right, thanks very much for having me. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and please support this podcast by using promo code VOBPOD. Gamble responsibly.